So what comes to mind when you hear the word church? I mean, what image or picture do you get in your mind when you hear that word? Uh, Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is this, uh, a building. I'm sure if you took this picture and showed it to people and said, what's that? They'd say, that's a church. That's the perception that a lot of people have, that church is a building. Or maybe when you hear the word church, you think institution. You, You hear church and you think denomination like the Presbyterian Church or the Uniting Church or the Catholic Church. That's the way it's often referred to in the media. There'll be those news stories where they say that the church has come out in support of such and such a proposal, that the church is that institution, that organisation. Or maybe your background is that when you hear the word church, you think in terms of liturgy or ritual. Maybe it brings back some fond memories or perhaps less than fond memories. Now, the word church gets used 109 times in your New International Bible and it never means any of those three things. In fact, it would be pretty safe to say that none of those three things even existed at the time that the New Testament writers were putting together their material. There were certainly no denominations. That's something we've come up with. Don't blame God for that. Uh, Church buildings didn't come onto the scene until at least 200, maybe 300 years, probably more, two or 300 years after Jesus. And as for liturgy and rituals that we often associate with church, well, the Bible knows virtually nothing of those things. So what is the church? When the New Testament writers are talking about church, what did they have in mind? Well, let's start with the word. The word that gets translated, church, the word that comes up that 109 times in the pages of the New Testament is this word. Uh, It's a Greek word, ecclesia. It's where we get the word ecclesiastical from. But the word simply means gathered together. It literally means called out. Two words there, ek, out, and kaleo, which means called. So the church is people who are called out. And ecclesia is not really a religious word. Um, Actually, in the book of Acts, you find it mentioned a couple of times describing a crowd, a crowd of people who are out to arrest Paul and even to beat him up. It's not Christians that are gathered together when it's talked about that way. It's just a mob, a a bunch of people who've been called out uh, to, to, to virtually to a riot. But most of the time that that word is used, most of those 109 times that the word's used in the New Testament, it means a group gathered together, specifically a Christian group gathered together and meeting in a specific location. So what we see written in the New Testament is things like letters that are written to the church in Corinth or to the church of the Thessalonians. So the vast majority of those 109 times that church is mentioned, it's that local gathering, the group that meets in a particular place. The church is the group of people who've been called out, called together, and they're called out by God. They're called together by God, and they're called out and called together through the preaching of the gospel. That's what unites them. That's what makes them a group. That's what they're called out by and for, is this message about Jesus. 
Where they meet, well, that's not crucial. It's not terribly important. Uh, In the New Testament, they seem to be meeting in each other's homes, uh, sometimes meeting in public buildings, but they could gather in a park or down by the river. It doesn't matter where they meet. It's the fact that they are called together, called out by this gospel message and they're united by their faith in Jesus. But God hasn't just called us into relationship with himself. He's called us into relationship with each other. God wants us, his people, to be a part of a church. God has called his people out. God has gathered his people together. Now again, it's important to realise that the church is not some institution that we came up with as human beings. This is not some mad man-made organisation. Having his people gather together is God's idea. It's what God has intended It's what God has called us to be a part of. And it's also how God is at work in this world. Now, I've said this before, but your faith is not a private thing. That's just nonsense to think that it is. You don't live out your faith alone, privately. God's plan and purpose for you is that you will live out your faith as part of God's gathered people as part of a church. Probably the most common image that we have in the New Testament to describe the church is the image of a family. It's all the way through the pages of the New Testament. Uh, Jesus said that we are to call his father our father uh, and that when we pray, we should say our father in heaven. And fellow believers, well, we're encouraged to see them as our brothers and sisters. That's the family relationship at work. God wants us to see ourselves as his family. Listen to a couple of passages, first from Ephesians. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the Bible wants to use that word of adoption, the idea of adoption, to describe our entry into the family. It's what Paul says in Romans. You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And then in Ephesians, Paul says this, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And then again, a little further on in Ephesians, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. We are family, God's family. We have been adopted And that adoption came at a price, a price that Jesus was willing to pay for us. So if that's what the church is, then why has God called us together? What has he called us together for? Well, I think it's safe to say that the church exists for a variety of reasons, but it's important to remember that this is the plan that God always had, to gather his people together. 
This isn't something that came up only in the pages of the New Testament. It was always God's plan, right from the very opening pages of the Bible, to gather his people together. Adam and Eve were those people gathered together in the Garden of Eden. The promises that God makes to Abraham is that he will have a people who are his own. He will be their God and they will be his people. And we see that plan unfold as the nation of Israel grows, that they are God's special people gathered together. See, God knows how we're wired. He knows how we're made and he knows that we are made for relationships because he is the one who's made us that way. Relationship with him and relationship with others. When you start looking through the New Testament and what it says about church and why we're gathered, it seems that one of the main purposes that we're gathered together is so that we can grow in our relationship with with God, grow in our knowledge and love of God so that we can thrive in that relationship with him. And we're gathered together to help each other mature in our faith and grow in our knowledge and love of God. Probably the most important way that we do that is by actually looking at what God's word says. Have a look at what Paul says here in Ephesians. He says, It was he who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul mentions four particular roles there. He talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. They're the people who are going to be teaching the Bible, opening up God's word. They're the ones who will help people to see what it is that God has said. So God's people are built up. They are prepared for works of service. They they reach the unity in the faith and they mature as they meet together to learn from God's word, to hear what God says to us in his word. That's why we look at the Bible each Sunday when we gather here together. That's why we place a priority on looking at the Bible in our home groups as well. But that's not all we do to grow and mature. Paul says a little further on in Ephesians that we should speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says much the same thing to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So we make those things part of our Sunday meetings here as well. The church isn't just about the Sunday meetings. It's about the relationships between the people who meet here on Sunday, the relationships that we actually enjoy the rest of the week, every day of the week. It's about being part of a family, a community, a group of people that have a love and a concern for each other. So God's called us to encourage one another, to look out for each other, to care for one another. That expression, one another, gets used dozens of times in the pages of the New Testament to describe how it is that we should treat each other and and have a, a concern for each other. 
I think we live in a day and age when we're encouraged to make most of our decisions in life around what I want, around what I feel like doing. Do we place our cent- ourselves at the centre of things, make all of the decisions to suit us, and then if there's any time left over, we may devote that to others. But the church should be the place where we actually think about others, where we put the interests of others ahead of our own interests, where we should be considered considering how we can better serve others. But we'll look more at that next week when we look at the question of how do I love my church? But above all, if there were one other thing that we needed to say about why the church exists, why God has called us together, then it would have to be to take the message about Jesus to the world. The way that God has chosen to make himself known in this world is through that message about Jesus being preached. And the church will be the vehicle by which that message will go out into the world. This is the way that Peter describes it. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have become God's people and God wants us to declare his praises, not just to each other here on Sunday morning, but to a world that needs to hear about God. That's what the prophet Isaiah said was going to happen hundreds of years before Peter wrote those words. He said that God's people will be the ones declaring what it is that God has done. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 12. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that that his name is exalted. In fact, I think it would be safe to say that that's probably the main task of the church, the main reason for its existence. It comes into existence because that message is preached because we enter into that relationship with God through Jesus. And the mission of the church is to continue to preach that message, to continue to take that message out to the world. That's what God has called us to do, above all else. It's safe to say that the image of the church has taken a bit of a battering in recent years, especially with things like the Royal Commission that we've seen. And while we should be saddened by those things that have happened, we should be glad that the spotlight has actually been shining on the evil that exists within the church. And we should be glad that it is being dealt with. But you're given the impression from some people that the church is actually part of the problem, not part of the solution. People often want to say that, that, that there's suffering enough in the world, why is the church continuing to inflict more? And they ask the question about why does God allow suffering in the world? And it's a good question to ask. And we should be ready to give some kind of an answer. And we should point out to people that it's Christians who seem to recognise that there is suffering in the world and, and it's Christians who are actually out there making a big effort to do something about the suffering in the world. The Christian church is the largest non-government provider of hospital care and education in the world. Hands down, daylight is second. It was Christians who started up groups like Amnesty International, Habitat for Humanity, Samaritan's Purse. Oxfam was started by the Quaker Christians in Oxford in 1942. 
not to mention things like the Salvation Army and the Leprosy Mission, and the list could go on and on. Eight of the ten most effective child sponsorship programs in the world are run by Christian organisations. I was a little surprised earlier on in the year watching the ABC News. Uh, They had someone on from the Australian Taxation Office who was talking about welfare providers in Australia. And what surprised me was that he said that 23 of the 25 largest welfare organisations in Australia are faith-based organisations run by churches and religious groups. Things like Anglicare, Presbyterian Social Services... So if someone wants to suggest that the church is the problem rather than the solution, or they want to ask what it is that God's doing about suffering in the world, I think we've actually got an answer that we can give them. We can say that God is at work through those churches to alleviate suffering in the world. Or you can just talk to them about what it is that our church does. That we support a dental hospital in the Congo. That we we support orphans in the Democratic Republic of the Congo that we're supporting a school in Zimbabwe, that that we're providing food for homeless people in the centre of the city. But let's get back to the question that we're asking today. Why should I love my church? Well, I think the short answer to that is because God wants you to. See, if the church is how God is at work in the world... If the church is the place where you'll be strengthened and built up in your Christian life, if the church is the place where you can encourage others, if the church is the way that God is getting the message about Jesus out to the world, then why wouldn't you love your church? I think that image of a family is probably a good one for understanding the church. Family's not always easy. Some members of the family can be a little annoying or maybe demanding or, well, you know what I mean. But this is the family that you've been born into, adopted into. This is the family that you are to love. I love the challenge that Paul gives to the Philippians, a church that was experiencing some difficulties and even divisions. So let me finish this morning with his words. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others.'"